Today, I'm so very happy to be speaking to the leading sports presenter, Jake Humphrey. I had the pleasure of chatting with Jake when I was a guest on his high performance podcast last year. So I was thrilled when he agreed to share his story with us today. Jake's story started in Norfolk, where he grew up, and after failing his GCSEs, he started his journey in broadcasting as a runner for a local TV station. A chance competition win, potentially rigged, soon developed into an opportunity to present, and his road to a glittering TV career had begun. We talk about Jake's struggles with his own mental health, the serious bullying he experienced at school and how his determination and self-belief led him to follow his dream to become a sports presenter. Jake speaks so passionately about the importance of working hard or grafting as he calls it, how he blocks out external negative voices, the key to focusing on taking responsibility for yourself and he's even making me want to get up and join his magical 5am club. This is a conversation that's very close to my heart and is testament to the power of positivity and self-belief. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street from the kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hey, Jake. Happy New Year. Last time we actually spoke, it was on your podcast, High Performance, and it seems like a lifetime ago. So how's the start of the new year been for you? Yeah, it's been okay. Thanks very much. Let me just say at the beginning, thank you so much for doing that podcast. The reaction to the things you had to say. I'm sure I've had this conversation with you over email, but you know (laughs) that the England manager, Gareth Southgate, has that down as his favourite episode of High Performance. I literally can't cope with this. (laughs) Finally, I'm cool with my mail friends so cool. you know when I mentioned that they couldn't cope with it well what you had to say Holly I said yeah. I promise you this is the truth it fills me with a bit of positivity about his role with England because I think that it'd be very easy for him to say oh I really like the episode with Stephen Gerrard or Frank Lampard or Robin Van Persie or something the fact that the England football manager thinks that a female entrepreneur who has set up an online marketplace is the person he can learn most from. Mm. That shows to me that he has a great growth mindset of thinking the total sort of antithesis of what he is. And I think that's really strong, personally. He's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And last time we spoke, you were in Norfolk for your podcast and you now are still in Norfolk because lots of us haven't moved. Last time it wasn't on purpose. This time it is. We were mentioning before the podcast, I absolutely adore Norfolk. My family lived there. It's a place we go to two, three times a year. And I actually heard that you're the ambassador for a day I didn't know, but now I do know, Norfolk Day, which is 
dedicated to celebrating all things of the county. What's so special about Norfolk to you? What I love about Norfolk is that it still feels to me like a little bit of a hidden gem. I mean, people like you on podcasts like this saying how amazing it is, is wonderful to hear, but it still feels totally unspoiled, totally untouched. And I've had a brilliant and exciting career. And the most important stuff for me is going off and whether it's travelling around the world with Formula One or going to a football match or a cup final at Wembley and all those people being there to get in the car and to turn up to a quiet little country lane Mm. and the next day go for a walk by the Norfolk Broads or pop to the beach. Like I just feel totally and utterly connected to Norfolk. And John Betjeman was right when he talked about the astounding beauty of Norfolk. Every single time we go out in the car or go for a walk, Norfolk takes our breath away. And I'm so proud to come from here. I'm with you. When I need that time, time alone or time just to think, the walks in Norfolk are tonic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are. There's nothing like it. It can pour with rain. It can be any sort of weather. It doesn't matter. Mm. You're so right. Astounding beauty. Now, I wanted to go back a little to your childhood because I read when researching you for this podcast that actually school wasn't a very happy time for you and that you were bullied and that actually it was so traumatic that you had to change schools and yeah. So firstly, I'm very sorry that you had had that experience. I can't imagine how difficult it is for children who are bullied and for yourself. Can you take me back to that period of time in your life? We left Peterborough, which is actually where I was born. And I was aged seven then, I think, seven or eight years old and moved to Norfolk. And the the new school I went to in Norfolk was okay. Then I moved up to high school. And for whatever reason, I don't know whether it's because I'd I don't, it's so hard to explain because when you, it's a bit like anyone who is the victim of anything, you kind of internalise it, don't you? And you think, well, what did I do wrong? So even now Mm -hmm. at 42, I'm sort of trying to find answers to what did I do that meant I got bullied. I don't have those answers. It just became the thing to bully me a bit. And I think school at that time, they weren't so good at dealing with it. So Mm -hmm. there was a period where I was made to stand up in front of everyone and they said, right, listen, everyone is bullying Jacob can we please all stop bullying him? And it was like, I'm I'm sure they meant well, but it was the totally wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. And then the kids I went to school with also went to the scout group and then it sort of spilled into there. So I remember one evening getting put into a tent bag, like a five-man tent, you know, the bag with this sealed up bit at the top. Yeah. And I spent like half an hour inside this tent bag and then I remember coming out of it and then I thought, I don't really know why I did it, but I climbed up a tree and, and then they were panicking, where's he gone? So then they were looking for me and then couldn't come down from the tree because like they thought I'd run away or something. And it sort of spirals a little bit. And I remember the most vivid emotion I have is my mum dropping me off in the mornings and instead of skipping into the school gates, I'd stand and watch her car go with that sort of sinking, slightly sick feeling like, here we go. And it was just so grim. My teachers always used to say, oh, Jacob is so sort of sensible and thoughtful and sensitive and understands other children. And I think back then in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, that wasn't a particularly cool thing to be as a boy. And I've now got a little five-year-old and he is identical. He is so thoughtful. Little things like he was putting some tomato sauce on his dinner and my wife went, oh, that's all we've got, I think. And before she could even finish the sentence, he'd leant over and was pouring it all over his sister's food to make sure that he didn't take it all. Little things like that. And I look at him and I just think, I just hope that that real pure beauty to care for others that you've got doesn't get beaten out of you at any point in your life. Because I like to think that we live in a slightly different world now where someone like Sebastian, if he is gentle and quiet and 
kind and understated. That's something that's celebrated rather than something that is seized upon, I think. You then famously went on to fail your GCSEs. You were fired from the beautiful establishment of McDonald's. Yeah. You didn't go on to uni. You went straight to Anglia TV, Mm. where you got a job as a runner. How did that opportunity at Anglia TV come about? So I was at school and yeah, you're totally right. I messed up my exams. I lost my job at McDonald's for a lack of communication skills was the reason they gave, can you believe? And so then... I actually had to go back and retake my A-levels and it was on the day that I returned to school that my politics teacher had a letter from a local TV channel and they were looking for people to come on and talk about politics and I was studying A-level politics. So I was looking for routes out, I was looking for opportunities to do something else and I had never really considered television. But I said to them, look, can I come and help out here and just do some bits and pieces? And this was really early in the days of cable television. It was a channel called Rapture TV, which was part funded by Anglia Television. So we used their offices and their studio space. So I used to go to Anglia on a Saturday morning and I would be answering phones, operating auto queue, helping the sound guy, moving sets around, carrying props, sweeping up, you name it, I got involved. And the deal was I would do that all day Saturday and all day Sunday and they would pay me five pounds in cash. Now... They had no money, so they didn't have very many presenters. So we all got little opportunities to do little bits of presenting. Yeah. And then came the real big moment where they ran a competition. And the competition was for viewers to send in home videos. And the best home video got to host a programme from Paris. Now, these were in the days where you could get away with rigging television programmes, which you can't now because there's been lots of issues with it and they're very strict. (laughs) But in those days, in the late 90s, you could do what you like. So the channel decided just, they had no viewers, so no one sent in a video to be considered for this presenting competition. (laughs) So they said to me and the other guy who was on work experience, can you guys just make a video? So I filmed a video in my back garden. My best mate, Stephen Scown, came along with a little camera and we edited it together. I remember playing Natalie and Brulia. I've still got the video somewhere. <laughs> Kicking the ball around in the garden with a really strong Norwich accent like that. So I'm like, hi, I'm Jake. And uh, I really love television. I love Natalie and Brulia. And I was like, hooting the futu with Natalie and Brulia on my chest. And, <laughs> and that is literally how I sounded. And then I was sitting in the gallery operating the auto cue for this live show called Exposure, which was one of the shows I worked on. And the producer looked at me with a wry grin and I thought, what's going on? And then the presenter went, and the winner of our competition to go to Paris is Jacob Humphrey from Norwich. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Then I had to convince my parents I should go to Paris and host this TV show for this channel they'd never heard of. Bearing in mind, my mum was a teacher at the school, Holly, that I went to and had failed my exam. <laughs> so they were like, what are you talking about? Of course you're not going to Paris. You're redoing your exams. You're going to university. Your path is set. This is the path. Yeah. But I did go to Paris. And then when I came back, the male presenter left and they offered me an amazing financial deal of, if you'd like to host a show, we will double your money. £10 cash (laughs) for Saturday and Sunday. So by now we're probably in about the year 2000, maybe, just about into 2000. And I was working, finishing off my A-levels, working at Rapture TV Saturday and Sunday, and then they offered me a job and it was five and a half grand a year, I think, as a researcher, producer, props guy, and doing the presenting. And the presenting from minute one, I found easy and I enjoyed. That was the story. That's how it happened. I've 
heard you describe this time in your life as someone taking a chance on you, even though you had this great talent, but giving you that opportunity to learn, to make mistakes, I suppose, to work the way that you wanted to work and you built your way up. And there's something that resonates to me when you just said that path that you were on. You know, one of my core missions in Holly & Co, within my decades that I'm going to be doing this, is to support children who don't have the obvious path. And I think it's so important that these stories are told to children now, because that path, by the way, hasn't changed, is exactly the same as when you and I went to school. What I'd like to add to that is I also think we are, if there's any people listening to this, and they hear this story and they, I think it's so natural, isn't it? That your brain goes, yeah, but that was his story. That happened to him. It was, you know, he just got lucky, basically. Yeah. What I say to any young people that speak to me about wanting a career, particularly in broadcasting, the first thing I like to say to them is, please understand that my time on Rapture TV and on Children's BBC are the periods where I got my wings. That's where I flew the plane for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, knowing that if I crashed it, thankfully there was no one on board or very few people on board. So it was kind of okay. Mm -hmm. I could make my mistakes out of the spotlight. And that's really great. The other thing that I really want people to understand from listening to this podcast is that thanks to technology, the opportunities, trust me, are greater than they have ever been before. The fact you and I are talking on this podcast, you know, you are a broadcaster, Holly, and you're doing it from a laptop at home with some equipment that might cost a couple of hundred pounds, right? Yeah. If you're a young person listening to this, you have got the opportunity to broadcast in your pocket. If you're passionate about something, follow that passion, create an Instagram account, create a YouTube channel, start making content. If you want to be a presenter, record yourself on your phone all the time, send it to friends, ask their opinion. Back in the late 90s, I actually had to get a job to do some broadcasting. There was no way I could do it without, unless it was like some old beta cam thing that my dad had in the house. And even then I wouldn't know how to get it onto the telly or there was no way to distribute that. So the opportunity now in broadcasting, in creating content, in speaking to people, in sharing your story, in sharing your passion, which is the key, is greater than ever before. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You joined CBBC, am I right in saying, in 2001? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you became a phenomenal presenter. You were against all odds, beat the pack, fame academy, just to name a few. Tell me about that. Did you know that this was it? This was going to be your life? It's a really interesting one, that, because, yes, you're on Children's BBC, you're on BBC One, you're doing the links before Neighbours in the afternoon, there's millions of people watching you, you're getting stopped in the street all of a sudden, you're going back home for family Christmases and your mum and dad are saying, oh, our neighbour's child wants to come round and meet you. You feel like you're walking on cloud nine. It's the most incredible thing. You feel like this door has been opened to this incredible world that you didn't really know existed and you love it and you want more of it. Yeah. I was by now in my 20s, which I think is the most difficult and most confusing time because you're no longer kind of around the nurturing mum and dad telling you, don't worry, whatever happens, everything's going to be okay. I found it personally a challenging period in terms of what's next? What does the future hold? And actually children's BBC... That was the most competitive place I've ever worked. And it was the place with the most questions and tears and confusion and people not knowing which way to turn. Quite a challenging mix, actually, that one. I remember I did a show with Holly Willoughby called CBBC at the Fame Academy. And the two of us just worked brilliantly together. The bosses came to see us and said, look, you two work amazingly well. And me and Holly got on brilliantly. And they said, we want to offer you a long-term contract and we're going to develop ideas. We're going to put you on Saturday mornings on the BBC. And we're also going to speak to the entertainment department and start working on formats for the two of you to work outside of children's for the BBC. Wow. Then they said, however, 
this isn't a mutually exclusive conversation. The offer isn't there for just one of you. It's all or nothing. We ended up in this weird position where we were still doing live telly every day. And I kept saying to Holly, have you sort of decided what, what you're going to do? And she was like, yeah, no, I haven't yet. I'm still speaking to my agent. And she'd changed agents at the time. And then she rang me one day from the agency and just said, look, I'm just ringing to let you know that I'm at my agency and we've had a conversation and I am going to join ITV to host their Saturday morning television. <gasps> that, again, is a brilliant moment of learning for me because instead of becoming the victim and going, oh, the opportunity was there, now it's gone forever, I then had to think to myself, and I remember thinking exactly this, right, I now need to find a way to convince them that even without Holly, I still need to be on Saturday morning television. And then I think I've got good at talking to the bosses. Mm -hmm. From an early age, and this is another really heavy bit of advice I would give any young people, don't hide behind anybody else. Personal relationships are the single most important thing. So let's say you and I, I don't want you speaking to a PA or an agent or anything like that, trying to work out when you and I can get together. Mm. We're adults, we're human beings. Mm. We have a sort of mutual understanding of the way the world works. It has to be a personal relationship. Otherwise it isn't real. Yeah. So I was making sure at that time that all my conversations at Children's BBC were really personal. And I was also very honest and just said, look, I want you to make this happen for me. I want to be a Saturday morning presenter. So then when I did land the Saturday show, which I hosted for a couple of years towards the end of my time at Children's BBC, that was another really sort of important um, line in the sand where I was like, right, when things go wrong, you still find the way around it. You still find the answer to it, you know? NatWest have helped us bring you conversations of inspiration since day one, and it's hard to believe we're fast approaching our 100th episode. Not only empowering small businesses to share their own story on this very podcast, but with a continued commitment to supporting founders through the pandemic, they joined us to bring you SME SOS, and most recently, Campaign Shop Independent. They truly do believe in the power of small. Now, as you know, every week we give away an ad break to small businesses. We're passionate about amplifying the voices of those who run their own enterprises across the UK. So without further ado, here's this week's independent ad break winner. Hi, I'm Pete. And I'm Sam. And we are the co-founders of Happy Stride. I'm a passionate runner and I've got bored of black running gear, so we came up with the idea of Happy Stride. A fun range of running and activewear specialising in shorts, leggings and socks. Our collection features bananas, avocados, flamingos, leopard print and loads more. Running keeps our minds happy and supports mental health, which is so important, especially at the moment. So from every sale, we make a donation to a mental health charity. And this year, we've chosen My Black Dog. So whether you're training for a race, doing a virtual yoga class, or simply just chilling, you'll stand out with Happy Stride. We inspire happy running and exercise globally. Check out our website, happystride.co.uk, and follow us on Instagram at happystride. For your chance to have your very own independent ad break and be heard by tens of thousands of listeners, there's more on what we're looking for at holly.co. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. You actually then decided, didn't you, that you had a dream of presenting sports. And you went for a meeting with BBC Sport. And you were told, which I can imagine, seeing a children's presenter coming in, yeah. quite bluntly, uh, sorry, children's presenters, you're never going to work in sport. And you weren't a sportsman. You didn't have a journalism degree. But you, again, didn't really listen to that. 
Tell me about that confidence and where that came from to make you think, you know what, actually, I'm going to make this happen. I love it. And it is a superpower for me that you don't take no for an answer. Mm. When we sit here now and trace back to those days growing up in Norwich and all of these little, what seem at the time like very small, almost insignificant moments that happened to you, you realise that actually what you're doing there, you're building the evidence that years later I talk about on a podcast. I mean, I did a video this new year about 100% responsibility. Instead of a New Year's resolution, take 100% responsibility for every part of your life. And actually, let's if we explore that now, we go back to the bullying. Mm. Fault versus responsibility, right, Holly? So many things will happen to everyone listening to this. They just simply will that are not their fault. Mm. And it's actually a bit shit, but the truth is it's still your responsibility because it doesn't matter what those things are. If you don't take responsibility, you're just giving up control and therefore... Everything's gone. You can't make it happen. Everything's gone. So the bullying, definitely not my fault. Still my responsibility to actually work out a way forwards. Failing my A-levels, maybe you could argue it was my fault. <laughs> Come on, get your way out of that one. All right, yeah. <laughs> but still, my responsibility yeah. to go back to school and find a way at, at Rapture TV. And then this little moment that happened with Holly, not my fault... Still my responsibility to get my way onto Saturday morning television. And then I have this meeting mm -hmm. where you're totally right. I'd spent the morning hosting a game show in the Blue Peter Garden called Mobster Lobster, where I dress up as a pink lobster and I wear these huge pink claws. <laughs> and I'm six foot four, by the way, and I don't move in an elegant manner. And I had these big pins sticking out the claws. And I was running around the Blue Peter Garden popping balloons while there was a caller live on the phone. And if it was a big starfish inside the balloon, they got 10 points. If it was a small starfish, they got five points. So... Mobster Lobster came up in conversation with the person who I was discussing an opportunity at BBC Sport with. And even though we're talking about 12, 13 years ago, they were much more straight-laced than they are now. It was almost inconceivable that they would look at someone hosting Mobster Lobster and think, yeah, we'll put him on a World Cup final or an Olympic Games or something. <laughs> but that's what and where I felt I should be. So again, it became not my fault, but my responsibility. So I then went through quite a tricky period and probably... I almost don't like saying it because it makes me sound like a bit of a dick. But if I look at my career since I started, it feels like a permanent upward trajectory. Probably the biggest period of questioning if this is working for me and it, whether it's right was when I went to see a guy called Niall Sloan, who was the head of football. And I said, look, I've been told it's not going to happen for me, but I'd love to just prove you wrong and show that I'm willing to put the work in, whatever it takes. And they gave me an ISDN kit. And I used to get paid, I think it was £100 on a Saturday. I would do a show called Sports Round live on BBC One in the morning. And then I would collect my ISDN kit. Mm -hmm. I was used to working with producers and cameramen and other people to write my scripts and going into a makeup room. And I was like getting stopped in the street by young kids. You feel in the world of children's BBC like you're David Beckham, right? So you feel like you've got to a certain <laughs> point in your career. Yeah, you feel like you've earned this 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 moment where you're like you're up here. Yeah. And then suddenly I'm putting this ISDN kit in the back of the car. I'm driving to fourth and third division football matches. I'm finding my way in, parking in a car park, who knows where, trudging down the road, yeah. walking into a press room, and I was plugging my ISDN kit in and I was dialing it all up myself or totally on my own, ringing in. Then a goal would go in. And I knew I was at, you know, Gillingham against crew or something so i'd go hi jake humphrey here gillingham against crew there's been a goal <laughs> and the producer at the other end in broadcasting house in london would say okay stand by we'll come to you if we need to 
And then I wouldn't hear anything for 20 minutes. And then another goal would go in. And I would write my report for 20 seconds, press the button, say, it's Jake Humphrey here. There's been another goal at Gillingham against Crew. <laughs> and this is, Holly, we're talking here about 2008, by the way. Not that long ago. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll come to you if we need to. And then I would sit there. I might get on once if I was lucky. Sometimes never at all. Load my gear up, get back in the car, drive myself home. And I remember saying to Harriet at the time, I'm just not sure, man, that this is leading anywhere. I feel like it's great for them because they're getting me sort of relatively cheaply. Yeah. I don't see the benefit to me. And that is the one time I think I've totally underestimated the importance of uh, getting my wings and doing things on the quiet and proving a work ethic to other people. You know, expecting it all to come instantly is, is a fool's game. It's really fascinating because you believe in hard graft. Mm. I mean, that's basically, you know, when you were talking and you said, you know, I'm going back in this podcast thinking about all these moments, I call it the golden thread. You know, if you literally sewed it from those points, we could, it wouldn't be a a direct line in any way, but it would absolutely be a line directly to this point at 42. And it's very interesting when you were talking about those 20s and 30s, I found that very difficult. Mm. I started not in the high street at 20 eight and you know why I have a divorce at 23 you know those years were very difficult and I'm 42 as well and I find myself much more settled as a human being Mm. and so it is this path isn't it that if we can help anyone listening you know those years it's about that golden thread and not having excuses I think this is something you believe in isn't it you know actually you totally believe in this fault versus responsibility and this philosophy and you don't believe that you should have excuses or the victim mindset Mm. and that actually that you're living proof that this 100% responsibility works. Talk to me more about that and why you've sort of got to this place in your life. Is it because you've seen people around you? I'm very close to a few people who tend to blame. It's everybody else's fault. And throughout my career, the knocks that I've had that have seen me literally on the floor, you have all the blame. You can put it on everybody else. Hmm. But ultimately, 29,000 days on this planet, is that where I want to be? You know, the only person that's going to pick me up is me. And this is something that you really believe in. I think it's so powerful to say to yourself that it is all just a choice. And you just have to make the choice of what you want out of life. And I know that sometimes that can sound really heartless. You know, if I say being sad or happy is just a choice, Mm -hmm. quite rightly, people who suffer with mental health problems will say to me, hold on, well, it isn't a choice, is it? Because I can't control that I have a a mental health problem. And I, in my 20s, when I was on Children's BBC, Mm -hmm. I did go through a really dark and difficult mental health period that meant I went and had counselling and spoke to a lot of people. And it was, I got really thin, I wasn't eating. And again, I spoke to someone and she said, you have to just understand that this is just your brain playing a trick. It's tricking you into thinking that you're this person when you're not, you're this person and you have got to make a choice. You've got to choose to ignore it. You've also got to choose that perhaps it's always going to be there in the back of your mind. And I think it probably is. And you have to live with this. Mm. But then she said, understand that part of what makes that is what makes this. A bit like, you know, what we spoke about at the very beginning. Yes. What gave me the bullying has given me this life. Your tapestry. Exactly. It's all part of it. And so I don't want to sound heartless and cruel, but I also want people to really understand that success or failure is a choice. Mm. Right. And I know that you then go, well, yeah, but it isn't. It isn't a choice. Okay. Maybe it isn't a choice, but guess what? 
why don't you just believe that it is and see what happens from that? Just believe that you are in complete control. So when I embark on a new project or even when I go to bed at night and I'm trying to do in 2021 this power hour where I get up at five in the morning and just really think about my day, I'm excited about that because I know that it is a choice. So whenever I start a new project, I say to myself, right, if this thing fails, it is absolutely down to you. But equally, if this thing is a success, then it's going to be absolutely down to you. And I find it the most powerful mindset going. And I know you talk about people who, who are around you who blame other things. It's such the wrong path to go down. Because like we said earlier, you're just giving up responsibility. You're giving up control. There was a brilliant book I read a few years ago. I don't know if you've read it called The Go-Giver. No, I can see myself. I'm getting up at six. This was my lockdown thing. So now it's going to be five o'clock, is it? Five, this is, you're yeah. going to convert me. It takes a bit of time. I went half five, first of all, and then you get to five, but it's not easy. But you know what? It's the moment getting out of bed is not nice. But then when you just get that total clarity of thought and the day is silent and everyone is asleep. And the other thing that's nice about, I know we're going off on a bit of a tangent, but the other thing that's really nice about that early start, right, is that some days you just light a candle and you sit there and you almost do what we're doing now. You look back over the last 20 years mm. or you think about what you want for the next 20 years or you just sit and chill for a bit. Whatever you do, you feel good yeah. because you know everyone else is just fast asleep. Yeah. And when your alarm goes off, Holly, and you've got the option of pressing snooze on your phone, yeah. you just have to make a decision. What is more exciting, the life that you're living or the snooze button? Yeah. You can't choose the snooze button. I'm with you. You can't choose the snooze button. I'd like to touch on actually the fact that your £100 Saturday job of freezing cold football stadium mm. actually did move through to the fact that you, you know, you got the dream job. In yeah. 2006, you became the youngest ever host of Football Focus, mm. followed by match of the day and final score. I mean, these are the big jobs in the sports yeah. world. And then you were also presenting F1 coverage for the BBC until mm. you joined BT Sport as their lead football anchor presenting Premier League and FA Cup coverage. You've got this unbelievable talent and it's amazing that you've shared that story about sitting in that cold you know, moment where you talked to Harriet and said, I don't know if this is actually going to happen. You had passion for what you did. You loved what you did. Tell me about this because do you think that this is the other thing that came with your golden thread, passion? This is an interesting one for me because, as we've discussed, there was no passion for this when I was 18 or 19. I didn't grow up watching television, recording radio programmes, studying presenters, wanting to be that. So where does the passion come from? I think part of this, and this is such a common conversation I have with people who haven't yet found their passion, what I've sort of come to realise is there are some people who just know and it's like, that is what I want to be. And I know I love it. And I'm going to focus on it. And I'm kind of jealous of those people because I think that's amazing. Me too. Because at 18, I was lost. At 25, I had a great job, but was still a little bit lost. Finally, at 42, I'm realising the way forwards. Now, if you don't have passion for something and you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking, this is great, you two sitting there, very pleased with yourselves because Holly's set up not on the highstreet.com and you've had a great presenting career. Wow, well done. I don't know what I love or what I want. Just find something that you might not yet have a passion for, but something that just gives you a little sense of fulfillment or something that you're just really good at that you might not love. Mm. Now, what you'll find is you do something you're really good at and then someone will pay you more money to do it because you're really good at it. So then you can actually buy a really nice car or get a new house or go on lovely holidays. 
you then get promoted or you get another great job. And then the people who are around you are at a similar level and they start talking about how much they love what they're all doing together. And suddenly you think, hold on a minute, I didn't realise I love this. And I still don't know whether I really at the very core, whether this is totally and utterly my passion, which we're all supposed to find in 2021, which is not as easy as mm-hmm. it sounds, mm-hmm. but it gives me so much. It allows me to do so much. I'm passionate about it. And that is one of the really important roots, I think. Don't feel that there is this almost intangible, mythical passion and you just can't settle on anything until you find it. Because you might never find it, but there is still an amazing opportunity for an incredible life. And I sort of think that maybe that's what I have done in that I really enjoy being a presenter now. But if you say to me, what do you enjoy about being a TV presenter? I actually enjoy the technical challenge of knowing that I'm the guy at the top of the pyramid. So there's hundreds of people making a TV show, but when the PA says on air in three, two, I'm the person standing there and I mustn't mess up. I really thrive on that. I love it when it goes wrong on the television and I feel like we're on a runaway train and there's a brick wall in front of us and the only person that can stop the brakes on this train (laughs) and keep the people on it alive is me. I love that feeling. I love the fact that when I go out, and I do, and it sounds egotistical and twattish to say it, but I love it when I go out and people go, oh, mate, I love what you did on the show today, or I love your podcast, I love listening to the things you're doing. I really like that, and it makes me feel good. And all of these things combined create the passion in me. Being a TV presenter is no different to being a teacher. You're just standing and talking to people. Yeah. I don't think I would love being a teacher, but I do love being a TV presenter because of the things that surround it, the things that come with it. So... If you can find something either you love doing or you love what it gives you, I think you will find your passion. And I think we all on these kinds of forums have to be so careful about sitting and wittering on about, I found my passion and it's great. Because I think it just makes other people feel inadequate. I wish for people to never feel constrained, even if it's the oddest of things. I actually think they're the best of companies. You know, the oddest of things are the best. So it's that world that you've enjoyed. And was that the start of you thinking about your production company? Because in 2010, you co-founded Whisper, your production company. It's an award-winning business with a huge purpose to innovate, do things differently. It was about connecting people through broadcasting. Do you think it's the future of entertainment? Have you seen that shift from that competitive dog-eat-dog CBBC world that you were in to now actually being the boss of a production company and what you're actually putting out there is much more connective on emotional level? Yeah, I think that um, for a company like ours, for, for us anyway, just making averagely good television and being paid to do it is not enough. We want to produce television with a purpose. That is a really big passion of ours at Whisper. So a good example of that is that after the Black Lives Matter conversation in 2020, we approached Channel 4 and we were the first production company in the UK ever to co-fund our own documentary. Normally you come up with an idea and you get paid to make it. There wasn't the money to make this, but we felt it needed to be done. And the show was called The Talk and it was getting young black children and their older black parents to have a conversation and it was a really incredible really moving and actually massively depressing documentary because we realized that the experiences that these young people are having now are very similar to the experiences their parents were having 20 30 40 years ago and we're all thinking that everything's moving in the right direction so that sort of television i think is really important for us 
And again, this comes down to responsibility and attention to detail. And we want to be the very best there is. And we know that the way that we can do that is by taking control and simply making a decision to be the best. And that takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of dedication and it takes sacrifice, but it is just a decision. And if you were to ask me the DNA of that business and why it has been successful and we are 10 years old now and we've got maybe 120, 130 staff and we've we've never taken a penny in money to sort of build the business. We've done it completely organically and um, we've survived through the pandemic, which was a really big sort of year for us yeah. just to sort of still be on our feet is quite an achievement. I think production companies, from what I heard, yeah. you know, literally were wiped yeah, out. Correct. I mean, for those who don't know your industry, um, you know, from what I've, yeah, it has been absolutely horrific. Yeah, I mean, the big challenge for us was that um, we mainly produce sport either highlights or live sport. And the very first thing pretty much that stopped was the sports world. They just pulled the plug on all sports events mm. because that was bringing people together and they were trying to keep people apart. So almost overnight, our entire income stream dropped off a cliff. And we've got lovely, nice offices in Kew in West London and we've got all these staff and we really like to look after people. And all of those things that are a superpower when business is good suddenly are on a kiddie's heel when you've got zero income. Yep. And we've been very, very sensible with the business. But even then, a business as sensible as ours, where I've never really taken any money out of it, there's been no sort of reward yet for the founders. We looked at the numbers and we were like, wow, six months and we could be gone. And that is a sobering thought when you spent 10 years trying to create something. And, you know, I have to say that the government furlough scheme was invaluable to a business like ours. we I don't think we'd be here and people wouldn't have a job. And our staff were also incredible. Yes. As was our CEO, Sunil, Sunil Patel. He forgave his entire salary for the duration of the pandemic because we asked all of our staff to take a pay cut to keep the business alive. And the issue for us is that some of the staff at the lower end of the pay scale living in London simply wouldn't be able to afford to live. So Sunil took no money mm. and his salary went to those staff that couldn't afford to lose 20, 30, 40% of their pay. And also I must mention Sony because at the start of the year, Sony took a 25% stake in the business and their approach to mental health is like nothing I've ever seen before. And they have these amazing programs and they opened all of that up to all of the staff at Whisper to just keep the lines of communication open and keep talking to each other. Gosh. And I set up a, a scheme myself. I put aside some of our money here and just sent a message to every member of staff, just a short video saying, if you've got a financial issue caused by the pandemic, whether it's a whisper related thing or your other half or, you know, a mum or dad or whatever, you know, I've put aside a pot of money and you can just have the money if you really need it. Let's have a conversation. I think that's when you judge a business, right? In times like that, you don't judge a business when things are going well and everyone's drinking from the nectar. I'm a bit astounded by that. It's a beautiful thing. And, and I think that this is where I'm so excited for you, by the way. You know, when we go back to that thing at 42, I'm just so with you that I feel like my journey has just begun again. Mm. You know, I feel the most at peace yeah. with who I am. And I feel most at peace with where I'm going. And actually, that kindness element, the people around you, you sort of realise now it's all about the people you know, mm. the people around you. It's all about them. And so to be putting that money aside, just take the money if you need it. You're walking the walk and not talking the talk. And I think we 
will both say we know many companies and all these sort of things that are jumping on the bandwagon of all of it. But actually, it's new business leaders like yourself and those examples. And actually, for everyone listening who run a small business, what can you do to show that kindness, that new way of doing business. And it's something I'm very passionate about, ripping up the rule book, if there was ever one, of the grey-haired men that have come before. And what is, you know, the ketchup example? Yeah. How are you going to pour ketchup on your sister's toast? You know, this is, yeah. it, it's, you're doing it right now. And he's seen daddy, you know, he's literally absorbed it from you. Part of your tapestry, as you mentioned before, is that you have a podcast that I was lucky enough to be on. And a certain England manager, as you said, obviously learns everything <laughs> from me. Um, yeah, yeah. Tell me, you've got all this insight of successful people, life lessons, experiences. It's called high performance. So, mm. you know, people would maybe think it's all about, you know, how did you make it to the top? Tell me about the one thing that you have learned from the people that you interview in the podcast? I think the single biggest thing that we've learned from people on the pod, which I think is a really good and strong message for everyone listening, is that we're all an iceberg, right? We all see a very tiny part of our story. So everyone sees with you, oh, Holly Tucker set up not on the high street.com. She must have floated through, made millions of pounds, probably goes on holiday all the time and has a lovely yacht. Mm -hmm. They don't see what's underneath the water, right? Or they look at me and go, oh, Jay Comfrey on the telly, he must live a stress-free life, goes to games of football, talks about football and goes home again what an easy life he must because we're all an iceberg including all the people that have joined us on this podcast and whether it was um nims perger talking about don't worry about where you're from you just got to take responsibility for where you want to be he grew up in absolute abject poverty in nepal and he then became a special forces operator under gurkha and then he scaled the tallest mountains in the world in record-breaking time and when i said to him how did you do it he said, because I believed I could. Mm. And then we spoke to Stephen Bartlett, who set up Social Chain in his early 20s, which is, he just sold it for £200 million, I think. And we said to him, what's your superpower? And he said, I just believed that I could. And I think that is the key from all the people that have joined us on this podcast. It hasn't been easy. There's been permanent struggles. They've all failed. They've all faltered. But they've also all believed. And if I was to give one message to anyone listening to it, and particularly to young people, is that I think these days we live in this world where we start off down a path. And you will have had exactly this experience with notonthehighstreet.com. You start off down a path and when you hit the messy middle, which everyone hits, when it feels like a failure and it feels like it's a nightmare and you are ready to give up. And I think the issue now, because I don't think we instill resilience well enough in people, Maybe I'm responsible for this as well. You know, this helicopter parenting, hovering around your kids mm. all the time. I'm mm. doing it on the homeschooling. You hear mm -hmm. it a lot on the homeschooling. Parents not wanting their children to fail, like failure is a bad thing. And then they get to a certain age and they've never experienced failure. They've got no equipment to deal with that failure. They've not got the vitamins and minerals, so they don't know what to do. So every single person on the pod has failed and struggled. So please, if you're listening to this and you're ready to do something and you start it and then you start to fail and struggle, don't think you're either not good enough or you're on the wrong path. You are good enough. You are on the right path because every single person that has ever walked that path ever before you has struggled and failed and faltered. The ones that have got to the place where you want to go are the ones that just got past that failure. That is the sort of key takeaway for me from the High Performance Podcast. Together with our friends at Three, we're working to make business dreams come true. Share your aspirations on social using the hashtag HollyandCoDreamer. 
and who knows what will come true. With a three means business plan, I love that you can get up to £500 of benefits from their specialist partners to help give your business a helping hand. Whether you need support with accounting or building a new website, three have got you covered. Now here's a short story about those that dreamt big and flew. You have to do what you dream of doing, even while you're afraid. We may know these celebrated words, but who's the woman behind them? Arianna Huffington, a prolific author and international media mogul who started the award-winning Huffington Post, was born in Athens, Greece. Moving to the UK as a teenager, she went on to attend the University of Cambridge, where she quickly made her mark earning a master's in economics and becoming president of the university's famed debating society. In the early 70s, Ariana started her career as a writer with her first book, The Female Woman. As a strong-minded, intelligent woman, she made regular TV appearances to pave the way for her views and stood as a political icon. In 2005, with a background of knowledge and accomplishments, Ariana embarked on the biggest success of her career and co-founded the Huffington Post, the original internet newspaper. After suffering a facial injury in 2007 as a result of overexertion, she suffered a nervous breakdown. But as with all great success stories, she bounced back. And since then, Ariana has learned to strive for balance, actively speaking about the importance a happy life has on any individual's success and the ability to achieve their dreams. Don't forget to share your own business dreams on social using the hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. And to find out more about their business plans, search Three Means Business. Now, back to Conversations of Inspiration. We're very lucky, aren't we, to have conversations with incredible people. And I always, I'm blessed and I'm sure you feel the same. It's like you have your own, it drags yeah. you forward like yeah, a year yeah, 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 per yeah. conversation. It's, it's, it's immense. And I know paying it forward because of the chance that you were given mm. and just now absorbing who you are, a beautiful human being, you wanted to get involved with young people and actually helping them follow their dreams. And yeah. in 2019, you launched the Jake Humphrey Scholarship at University of East Anglia. And you've recently helped a student launch a range of eyewear made from fishing nets. Yeah. You were inspired by his, the vision and interested in business. Is it important to you because of the opportunities you were sort of given, um, it was your golden thread, mm. to do this for other people? Yeah. The single biggest thing that I want to try and work towards, if I can, is trying to create a bit more equality for everybody. And I hate the thought that someone can't have a career in broadcasting, for example, because that's the world that I'm in, just because of a lack of finances where they've got the ambition and they've got the drive and they've got the determination and they've got the ideas and they've got the mindset. And I think it's so sad that there are, and there still are thousands of people every year who never get to fulfill that purely because the financial barrier that the world of work or the world of university um, puts in front of them. So 
Harriet, my wife, and I set up the foundation. I mean, it's such a simple concept from our perspective. When someone applies for the film and television course at the University of East Anglia, which is one of the best media courses you can do, it's all means tested now. So your family income is put onto the sheet. And anyone who makes it clear that their family income means that they would love to do this, but it's going to be a challenge for them or they're going to have to find a job to fund it or they're not sure they can accept the place that's offered, we will pay for them to go through the course to the tune of £5,000 a year towards their fees or towards their accommodation. And that's for every year they're on the course. It's a three-year course. So effectively, it's a £15,000 grant per student. And then we take a new student every single year to come on. So sort of from our perspective, it's quite a... it's quite a commitment financially. Yeah. But the impact of speaking to the people that do the course, and so far we only launched it in 2019. So we had our first student and then the student that was meant to start just recently obviously hasn't because of the pandemic and things like that. So we're ready to sort of crack on again. Yeah. I had lovely letters from their mum and dad saying that can't believe that their son is at university and they're getting this brilliant opportunity and we've been and met him and, It is incredible to think that you've got the chance to do that for other people. And I think if people are listening to this and they think, yeah, that sounds lovely, I'd love to do it, but I sort of can't. It doesn't have to be a financial thing. Giving back, paying it forwards, sharing what you know is such a powerful thing. And actually, I often say that giving away everything you know is really good. So if someone wants to set up a podcast about high-performance thinking, right, I tell them absolutely everything about our podcast, how we've done it, all the secrets, all the tricks, all the tips – Because then I have to go and find something new to still stand out. I have to go and refresh my own knowledge. And I think it's so important to celebrate other people. I have a phrase, pay attention to those who don't clap when you win. Because there are lots of people who I consider to be my friends and something great happens. And I think, oh, oh, you chose not to do anything about that. That would have been really cool if if you'd have shouted out about that. But I've noticed that you didn't clap and that tells me a lot. Look out for those who don't clap. What? Yes. I think so many people are nodding right now. Has anyone sprung to mind? A couple of people, I would say. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Just a few. It's not a nice feeling though, is it? You think, oh, actually that person, you're not a client. Well, it says so much, isn't it, about yourself. And it's about those people's fears. If everything in life is from love and fear, then it's not going to be the love, is it? It's the fear that they're feeling. Your success Mm -hmm. means something about them. I love this conversation, but it's coming to an end. You have homeschooling. As I said, I have a mock exam coming up. Not really. Well, I think Harry wishes I had a mock exam and he didn't have one. But I end all my interviews with the analogy that running your own business is like being on an epic roller coaster. What would you say has been one of your biggest lows? I think one of the biggest lows, you know, I love the fact that one of my first bosses gave me a piece of advice, never sit in the comfy chair. And it's on the gym wall in our house and it makes us laugh because every time our daughter, our rather bombastic, full of life daughter comes down, she gives me a face and goes, why do you say I can't sit in the comfy chair, daddy? (laughs) She hates that phrase. But Adam Stanhope said this to me really early on in my career. When I was at Rapture TV, I said, look, I'm I feel I want to leave and go and pursue other opportunities in London. And he said, listen, I'm not going to stand in your way because my advice to everyone is never sit in the comfy chair. And when BT Sport came and offered me the opportunity to leave the BBC and go to set up a new channel with them, it was the very first thing that came into my head when I got the offer was, right, I don't sit in the comfy chair. And it was an uncomfy chair because I remember walking into BT Sport on the very first day and there were six people sat around a table 
And that was the entirety of the BT Sports setup. I'd left the most famous, oldest, most successful broadcaster in the world to join six people sitting around a table. Yeah. So to take it to where we have to this day is one of the greatest satisfactions I have in my career. But the low point was when we had a conversation with BT and they said, yeah, you can still carry on doing bits and pieces for the BBC. And they knew that it was a great opportunity for me. And I worked on Formula One at the time and they'd offered me a contract to carry on, but we were having our first daughter, Florence. She was about to be born in the March. The Formula One season started in the March and we made it clear that just being around for her was also really important. And we were very honest with them. And I said, look, I am going to leave. I'm going to take this great chance with BT Sport, but I really hope that I can continue working for the BBC. And I got a phone call from a person at the very, very top of the organisation and I said those words. I just hope that the uh, the door can remain open. And they said, this is me shutting the door. <laughs> the phone went down. Um, that was... Uh, that was and I remember ringing Harriet saying, I don't believe what's just happened. Um, and then a few days later, I got a phone call to say that I wouldn't be hosting that year's Sports Personality of the Year, which is the big end of year celebration on, on BBC yeah. Sport. And I'd hosted yes. a full Formula One season. I'd hosted the Euros. I'd hosted the Olympic Games. It was an amazing year for me personally, and I was ready to round it off. And I was told that I I wouldn't be on that show anymore because um, they said it was a lack of loyalty. So that was really, really difficult. But again, Holly, loss. in the spirit of taking responsibility, I have to take responsibility for that. Yeah. And, you know, I have to get comfortable with the fact that I had to go through that to get here. And conversely, your greatest high and this is an easy one. And actually, this probably gives an indication of why the phone call about sports personality was the low point, because the high point was the very first time I got to host Sports Personality of the Year. I was doing these little bits and pieces for BBC Sport, but I was certainly not anything like at the top of my game as a sports presenter there at that time. It was before I started Formula One and I was asked to host Sports Personality of the Year with Sue Barker and Gary Lineker. Not only that, for the first time they were taking it away from the studio and it was going to be done in the Echo Arena in Liverpool with 15,000 people. Wow. And I remember walking out at the beginning alongside Sue and Gary, turning to the auto queue, and I'd rehearsed for two full days and suddenly this auto queue looked like hieroglyphics. I could not read it. I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> and there was prime ministers and David Beckham and absolute sporting royalty in the room and you don't want to mess up in front of them. But worst of all, they put my mum and dad in the front row. <laughs> so I've walked out at the Echo Arena I'm looking at the auto queue and all I can see out of my sort of low peripheral vision down here is my mum <laughs> with a big smile on her face. And I was like, that's making me nervous, man. That's making me nervous. Wow, my goodness. Oh, it's been such a privilege to talk to you today. And by the bucket loads, you have this beautiful quality about you and I'm so excited to A, know you now, Thanks. but B, just watch your take on life and what that mm. means for what we're going to watch in the future, from what we're going to hear in the future, uh, how you're raising your children. It's admirable. And um, I've just loved every second of talking um, and hearing your story. So thank you for coming out of the school classroom uh, for this podcast. It's a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. I've loved sitting and chatting to you. Oh, well, it's that time of the podcast now where I'm going to hand over to you. And I don't know what you have written, but you've written a letter to your younger self. 
thank you so much again. Thanks, Holly. And let me just um, explain that I know the exact date that I've written to myself on. I've written to myself on the Wednesday, the 1st of September, 1999. Okay, let's hear that Wednesday letter. Hey, Jake, it's uh, 2021 and I'm sending this letter to you from the future. So, hey, you know you made it to 42 anyway. However, apart from that, all I'm going to say is sorry. I'm sorry that I'm not willing to tell you anything about your life or offer you any advice at all. However, I will do one thing. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I am not going to smooth out the wrinkles on the paper, why I'm not going to fill in the potholes on the road and why I'm not going to ease the doubts in your mind. Because I know you really well. I know you're still heartbroken from grandma taking her life. I know you're still confused and angry about why school was defined by bullying. I know you're embarrassed that you were fired from McDonald's. I know you're devastated that you let everyone down, including yourself, when you failed your A-levels. And I know that as you read this, in the late 90s, doubt and confusion reign. So why would I be so cruel? Why would I possibly pass up the opportunity to be that ray of light for you, breaking through the clouds? Well... It's because I now know, all these years later, the vital, defining, determining importance of this period for you. Confusion, anger, heartbreak, embarrassment and doubt are actually your friends. In 2021, I'm actually grateful to them because they lit the fire. They filled the cup that in your 40s, you still drink from every day. They're your daily energy source. So I'm really sorry, Jake, but I am not going to take those away because you don't just need them. One day, you're actually going to look for them. Struggle is not the opposite of success. Struggle and failure is a comma. It's not a full stop. It's a vital step on the journey. Anyway, listen, I'm writing this letter to you at six o'clock in the morning. It's dark, it's cold, it's the winter in January 2021. And I have a really busy day, so I'm going to head off. Listen, do one favour for me. Give mum and dad a cuddle. I didn't see much of them in 2020. One day you'll learn about that as well. Anyway, I'm done, but I'm just going to break my own rule just for a second to let you know that that gorgeous brown-eyed, brown-haired girl in the crop top that you met in Liquid Nightclub Sends her love. She's looking after the kids. <laughs> Sorry. Crikey, crikey. <laughs> oh, it's just um, so much. <laughs> it's such a, you know, people are going to be listening to this yeah. in this year that we've gone through uh, or the year that we've got coming up and the year that we've gone through. And um, lots of people are lost yeah. and it's, your vulnerability and ability to be open that will help so many people. And I thank you so much for doing that and being that person and helping people understand that we have to have belief yeah. and that we have to go through the struggles and that the struggles are the building blocks of our lives. And I hope to everybody, actually, I'm sure you do too, that they're listening with the love of their life that obviously you and I have of ours. And um, it's been just a beautiful thing to meet you today and properly get to know you. Holly, thank you so much. Before you go, don't forget NatWest's Business Builder. Pack 
full of videos and advice to help you build your business and give you the tools you need. To find out more, head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker. If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.